We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Sean, I do think this is a nice segue into our second topic of conversation. Mm -hmm. And that is what does Notre Dame need to do to actually become that dynasty program that, that we think that they can be because they're not there yet. And I would argue that Notre Dame can put, has a chance to compete for and win a title the next two years. I truly believe that. But doing so won't mean that they've arrived as a dynasty. It won't. Just like LSU was, isn't a dynasty. They won a title in 19. They're not a dynasty. Florida State won a title in 13. That was a phenomenal team. The next year they went out, went 13-0, but they were an overrated team and got destroyed in the playoff. They weren't great in 2012. Mm -hmm. They weren't great in 2011. They were good. And then after 2015, they started to really go down. They had one great team, one pretty decent team that got embarrassed, and then a bunch of okay to bad teams. That's not a dynasty. So what does Notre Dame need to do to to be that? And let's define dynasty. So over the next, say, seven to eight to ten years, Notre Dame wins at least one national title and is a team that every year is competing for another chance at it. So – if we go like over an eight-year period, mm-hmm. you're in the playoff at least half of those times, and you win at least one champion. Again, we're talking minimum, right? So, you know, Clemson, what they've done since 2015, playoff appearances in all but what one year, right? Two national titles. Obviously, Alabama's there. You look at what Miami was in the 80s, and I, and I would argue that Notre Dame's 88 to 93 run was a mini dynasty time, M- mini right? Because they only had one title. I think they got screwed out of a second title. It's a different conversation for another day, but yeah. but at least half of those years, Notre Dame was a team that you looked at and said, they at least deserved a shot at a national championship or or were as every bit as good or could have, whatever the case may be. Right. And so to me, what do they have to do to at least at the minimum, minimum get back to what they were in 88 to 93? Those, that's kind of the premise that we're working with. The 
the dynasty standard isn't what Alabama's done the last 12 years. That's unique. That's unicorn stuff. That's like, that's like, that's like saying, well, Bama wasn't a dynasty because they didn't go over through a four year period without losing a single game like Notre Dame did during that four year period under Frank Leahy. Four mm-hmm. years, three titles, zero losses. That's not the standard for dynasty because it's it you can't ask people to live up to that. Otherwise, right. there's never going to be another dynasty, right? So, you know, so Bama's Bama's kind of like at the high end of what a dynasty looks like. Right. Then there's like the Clemson level. And and then I think that the only other team that deserves to be in the conversation over the last decade would be Ohio State. Right. Won a title, has played in the title game twice, has made the playoff at least half the times during that stretch. Right. And they've been 10 plus wins every year. I think they're more debatable, but because they won a title in this, you know, last decade of of excellence, and their worst year was what, like eleven and two? Yeah. It's been their worst year. I think they're in the conversation, and to me, that's it. That's the conversation. Oklahoma, to me, is not that, even though they've been a playoff team and all this, you got to win one. You can't be a dynasty without a title. No. And a title doesn't mean you're a dynasty, as we established with LSU and teams like that. So, Sean, and Georgia's not there yet either. Yeah. Georgia needs a, a, just a couple more years of you know more playoff appearances because they're not even the best team in their league, right? And And it's hard for me to accept that you're a dynasty when you're – not even the best team in your league. And then the year you won a title, you also got blasted by that same team early in the year when that team was still healthy. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. so when you look at Notre Dame, I, I think the first step has been taken. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. 
That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. And, and we're going to talk about the head coach now, Sean. Mm-hmm. But what I would say is we're going to compartmentalize the head coach right now. Because you and I agree that you can't say that hiring Marcus Freeman was the step to a dynasty in every capacity of what a head coach has to do. Because we don't know the answer to that yet. Right. I think in one as one very important aspect for Notre Dame especially, the head football coach has to be a dynamic recruiter or have a dynamic recruiting operation. I think he has to be a dynamic recruiter. I don't – because – Lou Holtz was a dynamic recruiter. He just did it differently than Coach Freeman because it was a different era. Lou could start recruiting in December because that's when recruiting really took off. Right. So Vinny Serrato would do all this work. You know, that's who Chad Bowden is now. Would do all this work, staff would do all this work, and then they'd get the kids on campus in December and January and they'd close for February. Right. That's how recruiting worked then. Yeah. And so Lou would come in and he would deliver the speeches and – Number one class, number one class, number one class, like back to back to back to back to back, right? And so, and so, I think when when somebody asked, do I consider USC a dynasty during the two thousands, a mini one, a, a similar to like the Notre Dame stretch, because it was such a short period of time where they were truly yeah. elite, dominant, but they did win a couple titles. So yes, I do consider them a. If you got to be at least a half a decade, they are a Vince Young scramble away from being a true dynasty. Even more, they're they're a Vince Young scramble away from being borderline Miami eighties nineties. Yeah, because that had been their third title. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yes, yes, and they were never the same after that. No, they were never the same after that. So that's why I say many for like a five year stretch. USC was the premier team in the country. Absolutely. So they're 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 similar to what Notre Dame was from eighty eight to ninety three. Like that's the to me those two teams are the minimum for what a dynasty has to be. You either have to have multiple titles or, you know, number one, two finishes over a short period of time or, you know, success over a longer period of time. Yeah. So back to the conversation. I think from a recruiting standpoint, Notre Dame has a head coach in place, Sean, that is a dynamic recruiter. And I think in today's era with recruiting being year round, it's hard for me to think Notre Dame can have the talent to consistently be a top five team. Facts. Right. Yeah. And so like Florida State to me was a dynasty in the 90s. Right, they weren't a great team after, but they were just top five every year. Every year, even if you take away the '93 title and say Notre Dame should have got that, they still won one in '99. But they were a top five team every single year. Yeah, and they were two missed kicks against Miami away from having another title. Right, so I mean, they were like that's that's the thing is that's the 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 bar. I think Notre Dame has the first step is talent acquisition. At the end of the day, is still going to be the most important thing for Notre Dame. Right. It's got to start there. And I think with Marcus Freeman and his ability to recruit and the emphasis he puts on hiring good recruiters, it's got to be those two things is the first big step the Notre Dame has. Cause I want to talk first, Sean, about the things we think that are in place already mm-hmm. for Notre Dame to be there and then what they need to do next. So I think that's the first thing that they have already taken that step. Marcus Freeman is a dynamic recruiter who understands the importance of hiring a dynamic recruiting staff is the first huge step towards Notre Dame becoming that that 
program moving forward. And I'll add on to that. He's charismatic. And he's a fantastic deliverer, deliverer of the message of the school on and off the field, not mm-hmm. only to recruits, but alumni, former players, and the fan base. That sounds like Lou Holtz. He has galvanized everything that is Notre Dame. And that is something that you have to be very special to be able to come to Notre Dame, which is a different place than any other college football campus or program, and to be able to bring all facets of the university and the program together and raise the level of excitement. He's done that. But not only that, you told me something that made so much sense this past week when you talked about his relationship that he has with Lou Holtz. Mm-hmm. You already know he has a great relationship with his mentor, Jim Tressel, who won a national championship at Ohio State. But now you add into the wisdom of Lou Holtz and how to handle the position of head coach at Notre Dame, not just from a recruiting standpoint or when you come before people and the alumni, you talk about things and you're going before the fans and the students. And there's so much wisdom he can gather from Lou Holtz and his mentor to go ahead and implement those things. We can just look at the way he put together his coaching staff, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was the first challenge, right? Okay, you have the job. You played the Fiesta Bowl, didn't go the way you wanted it to go. Now you have to fill these vacancies on the coaching staff. And right now, most of us are very happy with what we've seen from the coaching staff to this point through spring practice, the way they've coached, the way they're recruiting. And then we get to see how they react when the bullets go live. Well, I don't even want to say that now. I'm sorry. That's a wrong, bad phrase to use, especially with some things that are happening currently in the United States. I apologize for that. But when that, when the cracking starts with the helmets. On and the pads start popping, baby. That's right. We'll see how this staff is going to come together and how they'll react to live action. And that's it. But we got the guy. You need a guy as the head coach. We got him. And last but not least, just like Lou Holtz, you have to have a perfect mixture of veterans and youngsters to have a great team, a championship team. And with that, they all have to buy in because you're going to have some kids that weren't recruited by him that were under the previous regime. You're going to have some that were brought in by him and are quote unquote, his guys. And they, he has to be able to get the message to the entire team and get them to buy in. They've done that. Like if we've talked it, uh, talked about it ad nauseum, you know, be a, too much, Sean. Too They've much. bought in too much. Because they're over 86 players? and they're not figuring out how to get under 85. <laughs> <laughs> too much, man. And it's just, it's amazing to be at this point as a fan base coming from the disappointment of what took place when we found out the former head coach wasn't going to be here any longer. Going through that unknown of not having a coach and then coming to this position with this staff and this head coach, you have to be excited as a Notre Dame fan. 
There's no, there should be no other way to feel. Yeah. You shouldn't feel hesitant. You should be excited about where things are. Because of what we know. Yes. Now, here's where I would say we're going to kind of flip it to what needs to be proven. Okay. The fact of the matter is, is, is Marcus Freeman is only his dynamic recruiting is only going to go so far if he can't prove that he's also a very good coach. Right. And that's yeah. why I think this season is so important for Notre Dame because if he can go out and, you know, like even just some of the prognostications we're seeing, number eight overall, yeah. you know, 10 and two type of year, you know, yeah. like Lindy's has him playing Miami in the Orange Bowl. If you go 10 and two and you lose to Ohio State and Clemson in close games, it's not great, but it's, it, and then you win, beat Miami in the bowl game. Yeah, it may not be a great season from our standpoint. You know, you yeah. got to start beating those teams. But mm-hmm. from a perception standpoint on the recruiting trail, it's, it's going to be huge for Notre Dame. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, they haven't fallen off now that he's taken over, right? Because right. of the perception of who Brian Kelly is as a coach. If he can show that, hey, man, we're, we're still there, right? But now, you know, that's where the recruit, you know, you can't have, you can't go like nine and three or eight and four. You can't have that kind of step back. Yeah. And I think those are the things that I look at, Sean, and I say until, and, you know, in order to, because from a recruiting standpoint, you know, you have to start doing this over and over and over and over in order to really recruit at a high level. Like you can't just have this great 23 class and then not recruit like this in like 2022 the next six, seven years. Cause you may, cause then you turn into LSU, you, you know, when this, when that group, when, when 22 are seniors and 23 are juniors, yeah, you know, the, the, this Notre Dame team could be special, right? but then they're all gone and you go back to being what LSU was. Right. And yeah. you know, or, or that, that's, that's the point. You have to be able to string these together. The one thing that I think that you always hear when it comes to, you have to recruit at an elite level. The first response is what? You got to recruit top five classes. Right. That is such nonsense. Please stop. Please stop. Because if your evidence is Alabama, we've already said Alabama's a different animal. I'm going to read you Clemson's composite class rankings from 2011 to 2018. Because can we all agree that those are the classes that made up their two title teams and their run Mm -hmm. during that stretch? Yeah. Composite class rankings. 10. 20, 9, 16, 9, 11, 16, and 7. That's a grand total of zero top five classes. Now, the funny thing is, Sean, the worst team that they've had in since, what, 2014? Yeah. When Deshaun, and that's because Deshaun got hurt. The worst team that they had actually came that'd be the 21 team actually came after they had gotten back-to-back top five classes right the only two top five classes clemson landed were the 20 and 21 classes so their roster now is made up of more top five classes than the two teams that won championships what's the two to nothing between those rosters brian they recruited great players mm-hmm. but they cared more about guys that fit what they were trying to build Guys were bought in. Now they got skill players. They had quarterbacks. They did all those type of things, right? Right. But it wasn't about go out and get highly ranked guys. That's why Clemson has two titles and Georgia and Ohio State both have one apiece. Right? Yep. So that's the thing you have to understand is it's about building an elite roster. And so many people are obsessed with recruiting rankings because of Bama. 
Yeah. You got to stop. Bama's not, you're not going to be that. No one is going to be that. No, no. There is another way. Georgia is the only team that can come close. That's right. And, and they're even questionable. Let's see what they yeah. do now that they lost 15 guys in the NFL. Let's see if, you know, and, and, and Bama's going to be better. And so to me, this idea of, you know, top five recruiting classes every year, if that's the case, that's fine. I'm good with that. Right. right. But as I've said a million times, I care more about recruiting the right kind of players. And I'm talking about skill wise, building your roster, being complete, not like Texas A&M who had the number one class with like half their class played three positions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's not the way to do it. Right. The way to do it is figuring out what your strengths are, being great at those strengths, but then also upping your recruiting at positions where you're not as strong. So like, for example, back to James's conversation, right? Earlier, we were talking about corner secondary recruiting. Secondary recruiting has got to get better. But Notre Dame does not need five-star players at every position to win a championship. You know who – you know the only team in the country that's got five-star players at every position? It's all it's, – it's whoever's still playing EA Sports 2014. Right. That's it. That's not that's, real life. And that's when you cheat and go in and change right. the attitude. That's right. <laughs> that's that's not real life. Right. You know, and, and so the, the whole point for me is you've got to be able to get the right players. Now, this is not a shopping down a different aisle conversation. No. No. Because I think Notre Dame's capable of getting top five classes. But if Notre Dame has the number eight class in the country because they only sign 19 guys, because they don't lose kids like other teams do, and they only sign 19 guys because that's all they had room for, guess what? That class is going to be ranked high. Yeah. Because do you know what the class was, the class ranking was for the class that had Trevor Lawrence? It was seventh. They had five five-star players in that class. But the problem is they only signed, like, was it like 17 kids, right? So sometimes you got to look at a ranking and say, that's not indicative of how good that class is. Now, do they need elite classes consistently? We just said they got to stack top classes on top of each other. What I'm more saying is we've got to change in this chat. We've got to change the definition of what makes a top class. Because Florida State and USC were putting top classes together for years and not winning in the way that Bama and Clemson have won. Right. I mean, USC has out recruited Notre Dame. Clemson in four of the five years leading up to the 2015 matchup that Notre Dame lost in four of those five years. Yeah. Notre Dame had higher ranked recruiting classes in four of those five years. The only exception was the freshman class in 2015. That's the only year that Georgia, that Clemson had a higher ranked class in Notre Dame. That's it. That's it. But Clemson was a better program. Right, because their roster was built better, they yeah. had better depth, and they had better coaching. So, to me, you do need to keep stacking top classes on top of each other, but we can't always define it by how it's ranked by the services for a million reasons that I don't really care to get into today. Otherwise, our show is going to go on forever. But we we should all agree that you have to stack top classes on top of each other every year. It's just. We need to change the way that we define what a top class is and not just immediately go to, well, 247 said this. Because does anybody think the point? And so I'm pointing out uh, Clemson's. Does anybody think that they actually never had a top five class? Does anyone look at their raw, their, their, those classes and do you really want to argue that they never had a top five class? The ranking said it. The ranking said they didn't have one. But you look at their 2018 class. It ranked seventh. Would you trade that? 
there are not six classes that I would have traded for that class. Yeah. It had Trevor Lawrence, Xavier Thomas, KJ Henry, Jackson Carmen, Darian Kendrick, Justin Ross. I mean, Mario Goodrich, Mike Jones, Darnell Jeffries. I mean, that, that class had some Jordan McFadden. That class had some dudes on it. Kyler McMichael. That class had some guys that were very key to that team being very good in 2018. Yeah. You know, the, the 2017 class, which ranked number 16th. Right there, that's the class we always talk about. That's the one that helped them win the title. That's the guys that were sophomores in 2000. Or, I mean, um, uh, yeah, that guys that were sophomores. No, I'm sorry, the 2017 class, excuse me. That was the one that ranked 16th. That class had a lot of dudes on it that were very key parts of them winning a title in 2018. It ranked 16th. Here's who they had in that class T Higgins, AJ Terrell, Omari Rogers, Justin Foster, Travis Etienne. Balin Spencer Specter, who's been a pretty key part of it, but there's some pretty important dudes. Chase Bryce, they got in that yeah. class who they don't beat Clem, they don't beat Syracuse in 2018 if Chase Bryce isn't signed. But think about that: Travis Etienne, Judge Justin Foster, Amar Rogers, AJ Terrell, T Higgins in that class, and it ranks 16th. Why? They only signed 14 dudes because <laughs> they had signed so many kids before. Yeah, right. And so you just took in back-to-back years. You had classes that ranked 16th, 7th, and 11th because the 2016 class ranked 11th, right? So, I mean, do you, that class had Dexter Lawrence, Trey, Trey Lamar, Trayvon Mullen, Xavier Kelly, Cornell Powell, who was a, 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 got playing time for them. Sean Pollard started for them. Now it's Pinckney stepped in yeah. when uh, Dexter Williams got suspended for the playoff. Isaiah Simmons was in that class. Isaiah Simmons was a three-star, three-star. F- FYI. James Skalski was in that class. Kayvon Wallace. That's a lot of starters on that Clemson team from 16 to 18. That The whole lineup almost was, was from Tremaine Ankrum. I'm sorry, it was another starting offensive lineman. Those classes ranked 11th, 16th, and 7th. So the point is, it's not that Notre Dame can go out there and get genuinely the 11th, 16th, and 7th best classes. That's not the argument. The argument is that they weren't the 11th, 16th, and 7th best classes because of the flawed nature in which recruiting rankings are comprised. That's yeah. my point, Sean. Those were those were top five classes every year, in my opinion, based on how you should be able to evaluate top classes, right? Yeah. But in a rankings-based system, that's the point, right? And, and so that's kind of where I'm coming from on that. Yes, they got to stack up top classes. Yeah. The problem is not – the argument is not that that's wrong. The argument is we're not a, defining a top class the the right way because we're looking at the recruiting services as the definers of what makes a top class. And then they, once again, I, I want to reference, you know, a discussion I had with Wes Pritchett. And I flat out asked him, I said, in 88, did you guys think that you were a championship team? He's like, no. No, Lou had been there two years. His record was 13 and 10. Like, we didn't know. We're a championship team. It was like we beat Michigan. We felt good. After we beat them, we said, okay, we're a good team. He said, then we beat Miami, and no one else had a chance. Mm-hmm. And at that point, no one else had a chance because right. we knew, we believed. But th- th- these are the same players, Brian. Half of this team got embarrassed by Miami two years prior. Well, the year prior. The year prior, yes. They lost 24 nothing. I think, the year before. The year before, and then we'll before that, that, in Jerry Faust's last game on national TV, they were crushed. 
Right. So when we talk about recruiting, yes, you need to recruit, but you also need the guy that can get the message across and can develop what's there. Right. It's not like you're about to bring in 80 new kids that are freshmen that are five-star. You have to be able to teach and develop everyone in that room. Right. Yeah. Let's look at Clemson. They didn't have the defensive lineman that they had in 2018 when they won the first national championship, but you know what they had? They had a difference maker at quarterback. That's right. That's the next step. Oh, wait. Oh, yep. yes. They had a wide receiver like Mike Williams. That was a four-star slash five-star. But you know who else they had? That was the most important cog on third downs? Hunter Renfro, Walk a on. 5'11 kid from Las Vegas that was about 170 pounds when he arrived at Clemson that might have been ranked in the top 1,500. Maybe. Mm, I'm going to look that up. Maybe. It's like, dude, teams are comprised Sean, of, he, he didn't even have a ranking. He didn't have a ranking. Didn't even That means he was outside the top 2,000. But he was Deshaun Watson's favorite receiver. Right. And he meant just when it as mattered. much as that four and five star. Right. Did Alabama win before they became a great team when they beat Texas? That wasn't a great roster at that point. Those were players that had been there under the right. previous coach, and Nick Saban came in and gave them something to believe right. in, and they executed it. Greg McElroy wasn't a five-star quarterback, but they won. And then eventually, mm-hmm. as Saban got in there, he started stacking classes and built the dynasty. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily need a roster full of four and five stars to win a national championship, especially if you have a guy at quarterback a difference maker, you get a guy at wide receiver that can be a dog, get some other players to play their role. Clemson's never had a dominant offensive line, Brian. We talked about this constantly. I don't even think Dabo worries about getting a dominant offensive line. The only difference between Clemson the last two, three years and what they had previously is that DJ Uagalele is not the same guy that they thought he was. Because if he was, if he was like Trevor Lawrence, they would have been in the national championship last year. Mm-hmm. But he's not. They have the same talent on defense. They have the same offensive line they had, and they have a def- uh, uh, they have a difference maker at running back, which is right. what they always have. Right. The same formula. They it's the same formula to win. So. Let's let's dive into some some other things that are important from a from a football program standpoint. And then at the end, we'll talk school because I think the school has to play its role as well. Mm-hmm. So we talked about Marcus Freeman has to prove that he is that coach. To your point, Lou Holtz wasn't just a great closer as a recruiter. That would have only taken them so far. Yeah, he also had to prove he was a great coach. We can't really discuss that because we don't know. We both yeah. think Marcus Freeman will be that guy. Will it be in twenty twenty two? Will he need a year to kind of get his feet wet and then become that guy in 23, 24, 25, that remains to be seen. We're going to have to see him. Right. So that would be a whole different show where we would just talk about what do we think he will or won't be. We've already had those shows. Actually, we talked about, we think he, we did a show you and I, we think he will win at Notre Dame. We express those reasons why, but until then it's all conjecture, right? right? It's just, it's a, a it's emotion and feeling. It's not based on empirical data. So let's focus on the things that, that he can do to prove, other aspects of being a great head coach. So we don't know what kind of 
you know, motivator he'll be. I think we think he'll be a good one. We don't know if he'll be able to put together game plans and practice schedules and make the right in-game decisions and press the right buttons. All those things we got to find out, right? Right. But one thing he's going to have to do that we know he's at least on the first uh, attempt has done well, he's got to put together great coaching staffs. The one thing that Lou did, here's the biggest difference between Notre Dame from like 88 to 90 and Notre Dame from like 94 to 97. Even 93, I would argue that if they had a better defensive coordinator, then it would be they would have they would have beat Boston College. I don't think Rick, I don't think that was a great hire. Rick Minner had success because he had great players. Yeah. Right? Lou's staffs in the second half of his tenure were not as good as his early staffs. He didn't replace guys that were great that left with equal ability. Right. Here's the reality. If if Marcus Freeman is that coach on the field and Notre Dame has success and is a 10-plus win team the next two, three years, makes a playoff appearance, and even if they win a title, because, again, yeah. a title does not make you a dynasty. No. He's going to lose a lot of this current staff is going to be gone. Let's just be honest about that. Like, yeah. There's like one coach that I can see being at Notre Dame for the next – 10 years of age permits. And that's Harry. That's it. That's it. Like, and even him, I don't see like, I mean, he's 60 years, one years old. Right. But like, he's he's definitely grooming his, his replacement right now. But like Al Washington, if Notre Dame has Al Washington, be a head coach someday, Dylan McCullough's be a head coach someday. Mm -hmm. You know, Jared Parker's going to have an OC job. Tommy Reese may be a head coach someday, you know, like, Mike Mickens is going to get that chance to be, you know, to be that guy. Chris O'Leary is going to, someone's going to hire him as a defensive coordinator if Notre Dame has success. That's what happens with great program. I mean, Al- Alabama has lost so, I can't, I don't know if they've ever gone more than two years with the same staff. Yeah. Or even close yeah. to the same staff. Yeah. That's going to happen. So the key for Coach Freeman is he's got to show that he can replace great coaches who leave the right way, in the right way, meaning you're not firing a guy. Like it, meaning, like when you have a guy that that does the job, like if a guy's not doing the job and you fire him and replace him with somebody better, that's part of it. But that's not why you're winning because you shouldn't have hired the bad guy to begin with. Right. It's more about when you lose a great coach. If you go out and win the title in 23, and or let, let's just say hypothetically they win the title this year, mm-hmm. Tom Reese is gone. I mean, he, he's probably gonna be head coach somewhere. Yeah, Al Washington's probably gonna be head coach somewhere. Right, like you're gonna lose guys like that. Because yeah. you just want a title. That's just the way that it goes. People overrate, you know, circumstances or they want to tap into not overrate also, but tap into the great players, right? You're gonna point is you're gonna lose some dudes. Okay. That's just the that's the way it goes. You're not gonna win a title and bring back all 10 of your coaches. Alabama or Georgia just lost dudes. Right. Right. I mean, they'd lost a dude to LSU, right? You had another guy retire. You're gonna lose coaches. Mm-hmm. And you replace them with equal quality of your of your coaches. That's going to be a huge, huge piece for him to become a dynasty. Because, and, and then if when when you do make mistakes, and he will, can you quickly recognize and replace? That's the second part of putting together a great staff. Because you know who else has made bad hires in their career? Nick Saban, Ryan Day, Ryan Day, Dabo, Urban yeah. Meyer. Yeah. Right. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. Brian Kelly's not the only coach who made bad hires. Yeah. The issue I have with Brian Kelly was never that he shouldn't have hired Brian Van Gorder. I understand why he did it. I didn't like it at the time, but I get it. You've known him. 
He's been at SEC coordinator. He's been in the NFL. I understood the move. I just didn't like – I didn't think he was going to be a great coordinator. I didn't think he was going to be as bad as he was. Right. But when you recognize that he's not that guy, then then make the move. Urban Meyer at one point in time thought that having Tim Beck and Ed Warner as co-coordinators was a smart decision. Right. It was not a smart decision. Right. I felt that at the time it was a bad decision. And he did it for a year. They went to the playoff. They out-talented people that year, Sean. That's a, that's a simple fact. That 2016 Ohio State team just simply had way better players than anybody else they played. Yeah. They didn't play a team with equal talent until they got to the playoff, and they got beat 31 to nothing. Yeah. And you know what he did right after that? He fired them. Right? I mean, he did the same thing in 2013. The defense collapsed at the end of the year. They got whooped by Michigan State at the end of the year. And I mean, physically, they got whooped. The score yeah. wasn't a bluff. They physically got beat up by Michigan State. They'd had some games they won where they gave up a lot of points, and then they could not stop Taj Boyd in the Orange Bowl at all. So, what is Urban Meyer? They just went 12 and 2. 12 and 2. They were 12 and 0. They had won 24 straight games with Everett Withers as a defensive coordinator. So, what did Urban Meyer do? He fired him and hired Chris Ash. What did they do the next year? Got better every single week on defense and eventually. That year they won a national championship. Won a national championship, right? And and offense wasn't good enough. So what does he do? Goes out and hires Ryan Day, hires Kevin Wilson, and and th- they get better, yeah. right? And and yeah. so to me, Sean, it's you're gonna make mistakes as a head coach when with your hires. It happens, it happens to everyone. Yeah, but can you then quickly recognize, fire, and then change? That's probably my biggest concern with Marcus Freeman because he is a decent person he strikes me as someone who firing someone might be one of the harder things that he does but it should be hard it shouldn't be easy for you to tell another human being that you're fired and have no use for you but it's, it doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do yeah yeah you know what I mean and that's kind of where I'm getting from I see both sides of that coin with Marcus Freeman right I see how he interacts with his coaches and how the staff interacts with each other. And I can see it being difficult, but at the same time, knowing him and hearing, listening to the players say, yo, yeah, you can say he's a player coach, but he has that side where he lets us know, Hey, and he's all business. So I I see him being able to compartmentalize when he needs to step up and operate like that and change things and move in another direction. And I see him being able to cause people to come in, feel comfortable and be successful mm-hmm. as a coach on his coaching staff. So I, I can see, I can see both sides of that and why you might feel that way. For it's me, more of an unknown. Yeah. That's it is the thing. Unknown. It's an it unknown. Is unknown. We don't know. Like I, cause I, cause are you, you're coming well, from, let me, let me we, ask you this question to clarify. Yeah, go ahead. Are you kind of looking at it from the standpoint because he has set such this is the standard, you need to live up to the standard that you believe based on that, he then has the ability, even though he is a, a good guy and all that, to say, Hey, you didn't live up to the standard, we got to make a move. Is that kind of you're kind of drawing that line? I'm drawing that line, and I was going to use the way he handled, and we kind of had a difference of opinion, but I think we can agree the way he handled the Tommy situation, like we saw it differently. But we both agreed the way he handled it was the right thing to mm-hmm. do, which makes mm-hmm. you think, okay, he's going to know how to handle difficult situations. Like that was the situation. 
Talking about when Tony was looking, when was being yes, rumored for other jobs. Reported, when it was reported that he was possibly looking or being offered by another program. He went to Tommy and said, look, however you want to think and what it meant, what he meant by it, do you want to be here? Like, this is the direction we're going. You know, if you want to go be somewhere else, that's fine. But if you want to be here, it's time to close mm -hmm. the door. Right. On all of this stuff so we can get to the business of building this program. Right. And I thought that was the absolute best way to handle it. Mm -hmm. You know, and when he handled that situation, I'll tell you another situation. The way he handled the Clarence Lewis situation immediately after the Fiesta Bowl, I thought was brilliant. It was like, yo, okay, that's something as a head coach that I see either he has naturally or he has been mentored well by his mentor right. to be able to answer that question in the fashion that he answered it and to pretty much let everyone know that story is over. Now right. we build this team. But he also then has to prove that he's also willing to defend his player, build his player up, but then also bench that kid if he's not going to the job. Absolutely. So, and those are all the things that we think he'll do, right? Yeah. That he still has to show me he'll do. Mm -hmm. Like. I think that Coach Freeman will make the right decision. Because honestly, there were some questions about whether or not he would get rid of Jeff Quinn and Dell Alexander right away. Right. You know, what, what was the move he's going to make there? Well, we learned early on that Jeff Quinn wasn't coming back, but then there yeah. was rumblings that, you know, maybe he was going to keep Dell Alexander. When we come to find out, a lot of that was kind of smoke that he would, he'd kind of, you know, it, it was known already that it was going to make that move. Right. And, and so, there's some evidence, but again, that's going to have to be the key. Yeah. It's easy. It's going to, I'm not worried about him firing guys that are just bad, just really bad. It's, it's, are you living up to the standard that we've set? There's, there's mm -hmm. a difference. It's not like you're the standard and then Dell and then that's it. That, right. That's the only two options. Right. Sometimes the guy's a good coach, but he's not enough. And not that's enough. the thing keeping us from that next level. Absolutely. Those are things he has to prove. Now we can say all till, till we want that he's going to do it, but that's what he's got to prove because putting together consistently putting together great coaching staffs is important, but, and then also moving on from your mistakes, which again, like Nick Saban made a mistake in hiring after he'd won multiple titles already. And that's when he made Tosh Lupau his defensive coordinator. Mm -hmm. A horrible decision. Horrible decision. But he moved on from it really quickly. Yeah. And and so that's what that's what you got to do. That's yeah, gonna be the key. We have seen, I get I guess we've seen the breadcrumbs. Right. In certain situations to say, okay, I feel confident that when certain situations do arise he's going to be able to meet the challenge right, and make the right decision. Ultimately, right. we can only wait and see how things yeah. play out. Because we do agree him doing yeah. so is going to be important to creating a dynasty. Absolutely. That's the key. I think Absolutely. he can keep this staff together and not long enough to win a title. Mm -hmm. We're having a dynasty discussion. I think they want to win a title together. Yes, they staff. do. Yes. Now, winning a title makes it easier to then go hire that next guy. Right. I think that helps, but yeah. you've got to make those decisions because I don't think Ed Orgeron did that. Yeah. And he lost Joe Brady and he lost some different guys and he replaced I mean, he thought Bo Pelini was the right move. Yeah. In Ed Orgeron's defense, he moved on from that after a year. I mean, you know, just there was a lot of other problems that Ed Orgeron had 
that caught brought that program down just other than Pope Bo Pelini wasn't the reason that LSU is where they are now. It was yeah. a lot of other stuff. It just Bo kind of helped expedite that expedite process. Yeah. Right. You're right. So I think the coaching aspect of it is important. I mean, just this, this is the one I'm going to kind of get into a, a specific person standpoint. Shoot. Okay. You've got to try to keep Chad Bowden as part of your institution as long as possible. He is a, can I use the word rock star? Yeah, you can. Yeah. He's a flat out rock star right, right now in the recruiting circles, especially with the parents, right. especially with the parents. And I was, did we have this discussion offline this week when we were talking about the vast majority of recruits we talked to, if it was strictly up to their parents, Notre Dame. Oh, it was, I think it was about, last week. Yeah, yeah, it was last week. Yeah. If it was strictly up to the parents, Notre Dame would probably land like, Sean, All if it was up to parents, stars. Notre Dame would be a top five class every year, every year. under every Ty, year. Yes. Charlie, yes. Davey, you know, and uh, <laughs> BK. Yes. It's up to parents. Notre Dame's a top five class every yeah. year. Yeah, every year. And Chad is just continuing that and yeah. doing a stand-up Chad's job. making it to where you're going to finish number one every year if it's up Absolutely. to parents. Yes. Absolutely. And he's not doing – he's doing that with the families. He's doing it with the recruits. It's almost like before you even hear them talk about Marcus Freeman, the first name out of their mouths is Chad. Right. Like, man, I love Chad. I would, I would argue we hear we we might even hear Chad's name mentioned more with recruits. Yeah. Which is not under which is understandable because that's literally his number one job. Yeah. Mar, that's a part of Marcus Freeman. That's an important part of Marcus Freeman's job. It's not his only job. Yeah. That's Chad's only job. Yeah. You know, like I could see Chad maybe someday also be kind of coming you know, being promoted into that role that Lonzo Highsmith now has for Miami. Mm-hmm. I could see that Yeah. also. Yeah. Uh, but, and then if Chad ever leaves, finding a person that's going to continue that the same way. Yeah. That's a very important piece of this too. Yeah. I think let's talk specifics of what the program needs to be in order to take that next step. I think the line talent and the line play we know on offense has been great. I think they've had multiple years where Notre Dame mm-hmm. has been good enough to be a chance. Let's be honest, Notre Dame's 2016 team was pretty close to being good enough to win a championship with the you know with the the line being part of a championship team when you compare it to like what Clemson had that year. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like right guard was an issue, but they were good at center. They were good on the left side, McGlinchey and. And and Nelson were both Nelson. second, third team All Americans. Alex yeah. Bars was real solid at right guard. Mustafa yeah. was solid at center. Right guard was an issue, but Clemson didn't have a very good line that year either, no. right? It, no. it was you couldn't win because of your offensive line right. that year. They could have won it because of the line in fifteen, because of the line in seventeen. Even the eighteen line with Jeff Quinn was good enough to win a title with that group in the same way that Clemson won a title with their offensive with their line. offensive line. They right. were very similar lines, yeah. not elite, not dominant, but good quality lines yeah right 2020 2015 2014 uh was a was was a a a bit of an it wasn't a great year but by the end of the year was playing well the 2013 line flat out you could have won it i mean a team you just couldn't sack or tommy reese that year 2012 you were there half the line you know the other half not so much but as as he kind of was deeper and deeper in his tenure you had that pretty much every year. And yeah. so I think offensive line. Now, here's the thing. The Notre Dame defensive line has been really good in recent years. I do think that needs to get better. 
I, I do think the talent level needs to get better. I do think the coaching needs to get better. Mike Elsa did a good job. This isn't revisionist history, and now we're going to bang Mike Elston. Mike Elston did a good job. His players were fundamentally sound. They tried hard. He was a good recruiter to a degree. Uh, he benefited from some recruiting that Keith Gilmore did, if we're yeah. going to be honest. Keith yeah. Gilmore's the guy that recruited Daylon Hayes and Adi Ogundiji and Khalid Kareem. we got to be honest about that, right? But he also, you know, Elston also recruited Isaiah Foskey and the Adam Yules and, you know, th- those kind of guys. Harry Heastan recruited Jerry Tillery. But, you know, they had good lines. Right. The, the, the issue, the thing for me is, but but now we're talking about taking that next step, right, and being an elite team year after year after year. Not only does the talent got to get better, the other part of it is they got to become a better coach defensive line. Elson did a good job. There's another level. And, and I think the thing that I consistently read mm-hmm. – when I read about NFL teams looking at Notre Dame's defensive linemen, and this goes back to the you know to Tillery, it goes back to you know Kareem. There was always a little bit of a concern about the lack of a of an array of moves. Like each guy had like one move he was really good at, or one or two moves he was really good at. But yeah. and Elson was really good at like teaching the the the, the using their sure. length, yeah. and, you know the power moves, but like. They don't have like an assortment of moves that they could really go to. Right. He taught the basics as good as any coach in the country. I would argue that. And I would I would argue till the day that I die about that. Mike Elson taught the basics of defensive line play as good as any team in the country, which just let just okay, it's the basics. Now go play ball. Right. And it took advantage of your talent. Now, to take that next step, however, I think they got to get to another level. They've got to get it to where not only do you have a player like Isaiah Foskey, but Isaiah Foskey now has a deeper arsenal to go to, right? Where, you know, you're just not better. Like Notre Dame's D-line beat up Clemson in 2018 because they just had better dudes. Yeah. I mean, their dudes were just better than Clemson's dudes. Right. right. It's as simple as that. That's not always going to be the case. You have to not only have talent, but you also have – like. Keon Keeley can't come to Notre Dame and just rely on talent and basic fundamentals. He'll be a really good player, but to be a Will Anderson, a game changer, a, you know, a Julius Peppers, an Indomitian Sioux type of take a game over type of guy, Jason Moore, same way, Tyson Ford, all these D linemen are recruiting, Bubakar, all of them, Devin Houston. They need a coach that can also teach them that second level, take them to that next level. Okay. Now they got football. They got D line play one-on-one down pat. That's great. Right. Elson was awesome at that. And that's a, this is a compliment, but now you need to start giving them some senior level classes to where they've got counter moves. They've got, if this team does this, if my move isn't working, I got this. And I think that's the next step because for Notre Dame to be a dynasty, they have to have great play along, but they can't, they're not going to ever just out talent and out athlete the best teams in the country for three to five games a year. And what I mean by three to five games a year is you're going to have two games during the regular season, usually against an elite team. Yeah. And then, you know, sometimes three, especially if USC gets good again, and then you've got the two in the postseason where you're going to play that team. Yeah. To beat those teams, your D line play has to go to another level. It's close, but it's got to go to another level because Notre Dame has in that look 88 team. I mean, you look at that 1993 defensive line. Good Lord. I mean, they just they they embarrassed the Florida State offensive line. Yeah, in the '88 defensive line didn't dominate Miami, but they they went toe to toe with a really good Miami offensive line and yeah. made big play. I mean, George yeah. Williams had a huge play in that game. 
right? Including it, yeah. getting that great penetration at the very end where he gets in Steve Walsh's face and he makes him throw it high. And that allows Pat Terrell to, because yeah. remember, he was beat. He was beat. He early, was beat. Early in the round. Yeah. Steve Walsh can just snap and snap that thing off. It's ball yeah. game. Miami wins. But, but because the Joe, rush. there you go. Yeah. He couldn't plant his feet and throw the ball. You look at the the Frank Stam's uh, strip sack early in the game, right? That set an agenda that hey, we're here to play. Chris Zorch was a beast in that game, right? It's Jeff Alm made some plays in that ball. game, right? Yeah, yeah, Jeff Alm was a was was a battler that game. Yeah. You know, rest, man, he rest in peace. So Notre Dame could beat you up in the trenches on both sides of the ball. That's why yeah. they beat Miami that year, and, and yeah. is they were they were the better team in the trenches, and then that made them good enough. Yeah. On the perimeter with Ricky, with with Rocket, you know, in, in 93 with Lee Becton, with, you know, the guys that they had in 93, but especially in 88. I mean, the 88 team and the 89 team, they had legit big-time skill players. Yeah, They just didn't have – they had three and other teams had six. They right? said uh, – Wes Pritchard said the Michigan game was the toughest game. In 88? Yeah, they said they went to the Miami yeah. game knowing they were going to push them around. Right. They knew they were going to push their offensive yep. line around. And you couldn't said, push Michigan around. They walked in and they saw Screpinick and Jimbo Elliott at like mm-hmm. 320, 315. Yep. It was a heavyweight fight. And they yep. knew for four quarters they were going to have to stand there in the middle of the ring and throw blow for blow. And yeah. it came down to the last snap and a missed field goal, and it set the tone for the rest of the season. Right. And most people would probably look at the Miami game you know, as the toughest game. But for them, just from a physical standpoint right. in the trenches, they're like, no, it was that Miami team. And we knew that's the way it was going to be. So to me, Sean, in order to, to consistently win, we agree that there has to be dominant line play, right? But here's, but here's why Notre Dame beat Michigan in 88 and 89. And that is that Notre Dame had the better athletes. Mm-hmm. Ricky Waters punt return in 88. Rocket mm-hmm. with the two kick returns in 89. Yeah. Notre Dame had better skill. And that's the final piece because you can beat those teams up in the line, but if they're just then running by you for 70 yard touchdowns, especially in today's era, because yeah. back then you could kind of get away with a little bit more because it was such a physical yeah. grinded out game. Yeah. Nowadays, I mean, in Clemson's a perfect example of this with their offense, they, they don't beat people up. They just go out there and, you know, their line's good enough with their skill to go out there and, and, and be successful. So, did you watch? If you go back, and I, I know you love watching old games. So, as soon as I say this, I got the turn, 88. I got the 88 game up now. Turn the 88 game, go yeah. to the second series. I think the series after the punt return, the next time Notre Dame gets the ball, Lou calls three consecutive plays. And the only thing that stopped Notre Dame from being a 14-zip and possibly blowing that game open is Tony Rice just being inaccurate early. Right. And right. they go play action to Rocket. He's, he's he's beating the defensive back by like five yards. I just watched Ricky Waters just absolutely embarrass the Michigan punt return team. Oh, absolutely. And here's the thing about – and this is the point about the skill, and I'm going to go to that play, Sean, but uh, but the, the, the thing about – about that 88 to 89 teams, especially with Ricky and, 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 and rocket is what y'all don't understand is Michigan didn't give up special teams touchdowns. No, three in two years. That's why, that's why Bo was so upset. Right. No, I believe I could be wrong on this. 
Yeah. But I believe Notre Dame scored more offensive, more special teams touchdowns in those two years against Michigan than they did defensive touchdowns or offensive touchdowns. At the very least, they scored as many because I think they only had one touchdown in that game in 88, right? Yeah. And they kicked, they kicked it. They had the field goals. Wait. No, they, no, they had the one touchdown on the special teams. And then they, uh, Reggie Hill had four, had four, yeah, Reggie Hill had like four field goals. Yeah. I think they only scored the one touchdown. And then the next year, they score. How many did they score in '89? I think they 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 '89. They had the um the one touchdown that was a it was like uh, Ray Zeller's out of the backfield, I believe. Final score was twenty four to nineteen. So they only yeah. scored three touchdowns. So no, three in touchdowns. a two year stretch against Michigan, they scored four touchdowns. No, it That's was Anthony it. Johnson. Anthony Johnson right. out of the backfield. Short, yeah. Short pass. So four touchdowns in two yeah. years mm-hmm. against a t- a pair of top five Michigan teams. Michigan was ranked number two, I believe in both years. Mm-hmm. And, and so, cause no, yeah, Notre Dame was number one in night in 1989 when they played. Right. In 1990, in 1988, Michigan was ranked number two and Notre Dame was uh, that Notre Dame had not jumped up in the rankings yet. They were 13th when they played the game. Well, I'm sorry. Michigan was ninth. So they had that game where they were ninth. Notre Dame beats them the next year. Michigan second. You're playing the number two team at the at the on the road, and you got one offensive touchdown. So the the, the reason for that is the skill is Notre Dame from '88 to '93, and this kind of goes back to the conversation that J- John James was making earlier. Yeah. I think James has taken an issue and turned it into an even worse situation than it is, and and that I don't think is accurate. Yeah, there's no talent in the secondary outside of one guy because he's ranked at such and such or whatever, right? Like, I don't agree with that. But I think the thing that we have said is it needs to get better. Receiver, there's good skill at Notre Dame at receiver. It needs to get better, right? Because the one thing about those two games, and this is the point I'm making, is Michigan was able to neutralize to a degree Notre Dame's dominance in the trenches, even if they won those battles, they didn't dominate those battles. Mm-hmm. And then it became about the skill. Notre Dame had better skill than Michigan. That's why Notre Dame won those games. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so that's where the, you know, and then there was a stretch from you know, like 90 to 93 where Notre Dame was putting guys in the NFL draft in rounds one and two and from the secondary like every year. Yeah. I, I You know, I mean, so they they need to, again, we never said they don't need to improve it. They got to improve it. And I think that's that's going to be an important piece to this, and that's where they're not there yet. So if you look at this, like in nineteen ninety, in nineteen ninety, you had Pat Ter- Pat Terrell was a second round draft pick. Stance McGall was fifth round. The next year, Todd Light not only in the first round, but he goes number five overall. Nineteen ninety two, nobody because everybody came back. No, no, no. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Rod Smith, second round NFL draft pick. Ninety three, Tom Carter goes in the first round. 94, Jeff Burris goes in the first round in the secondary. Willie Clark, who's a part-time starter, went in the third round. And then 1995, Bobby Taylor goes in the second round. I mean, so so and Brian yeah. Young left early too. What was that? 90. He left after 90. 90 he left after 93, but that he played four years. Right. Yeah. Tom yeah. Carter left early. Tom Carter left the Right. That's what we you and I were talking about the other day. Because it was yeah. So Pete Bursich was talking about that on your Pete show, Bursich right? Bursich was saying Tom Carter and Jerome was Tom, Tom Carter and Jerome Bettis were were part of the '90 class. That yes. senior year would have been '93, right? 
I think they'd have been okay if, without Jerome. Offense isn't the, was the Tom Carter coming back in 1993 would have been huge. 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 They don't beat. Oh, they don't lose Boston to Boston Taylor? College. They don't lose to Boston College. They no. had Jeff Burris, Bobby Taylor, and Tom Carter all in the same secondary. Yeah. They do not lose to Boston College if they have that. They do not. They do not. So the point is, there has to be better skill. They're mm-hmm. getting there. Yeah. But that part has to get better. And and then of course the final piece, Sean, is they have to do a better job with developing the quarterback position. I'm not going to say recruiting the quarterback position because I think Notre Dame has signed in the last 10 years, Notre Dame has signed at least four quarterbacks. that I think they could have competed for or won a title with. Yes. And that's that, that aren't on the roster anymore. Yes. They just weren't developed properly or they played on not. And and that's, that's Everett. uh, That's, that's Malik. That's Deshaun. And that's Phil Dracovic. I'm not counting Tyler because, again, I'm talking about guys who aren't on the team anymore. Right. Tyler, I think Tyler can be that guy too, but we're talking about guys that aren't that that are not going to have that chance anymore at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. They didn't develop it correctly. There, there's again, I'll refer people back to the show that Sean did with Malik a couple weeks ago that we put in the chat last week. There was a problem with development. There was a quarterback culture problem that was created. That's not there anymore, but just because that's gone doesn't mean that now all of a sudden it's going to be healthy because we still need to show that Tommy Reese can prove that. And then when Tommy Reese moves on, which again, great assistants are going to move on. If Tommy Reese is good enough to be around a long time, he probably won't be around a long time. That's just how recruiting, that's how coaching works nowadays. That's true everywhere. Bama, Ohio State, everywhere. So that's going to have to be important for Marcus Freeman. The next hires that he makes, he's got to make sure that he's hiring people that know how to develop quarter, great quarterback play Absolutely, because Notre Dame has to have a great quarterback. The thing is, you know, you look at 88 and 89, did they have a great passing quarterback? No, but they had a great quarterback. It's, it's about, you know, that was a different era. If 1993 was Kevin McDougal, a, a, an elite NFL player. No, but he ran that offense about as well as it could have been run. And that's why they were a great team. Right, 2005, 2006, those teams were competitive. You take Brady Quinn off those teams and put just about any other quarterback in the country on those teams, and they're not, they're not what they were. Yeah. Right. You have to have great quarterback play, in my opinion, at Notre Dame to consistently win. Right. That's a key. So I think from a player standpoint, Sean, got to be elite in the trenches, got to continue to improve your skill. And then, of course, develop quarterback position better. I don't think we're de- recruiting quarterbacks the problem. I think developing and quarterback is the problem. There is no when it's right. I preface by saying when it's right, there is no better glamour position no. in college football than quarterback at Notre Dame, especially now with NIL. When you are the quarterback at Notre Dame historically, you're a dude. Yeah, <laughs> that's marketable. And that's going to bode well. And we talked about this as well, Brian, because everyone, the name everyone is talking about, a change in that narrative, of course, is Dante Moore, Dante right. Moore, Dante Moore, Dante Moore. And we're, we've shared this. The development of Tyler Buckner will go much further into recruiting and impact recruiting more than getting Dante Moore. Because right. recruits in 24, 25, and 26 right. will see Right. Tyler Buckner. If Tyler Buckner comes out this year and becomes one of those guys, one of the best quarterbacks in the nation, now we're cooking with grease. Right. Now, now we got a good fire going. 
and we expect Dante Moore to come into the class. Go ahead. I you I know you had something. Right no, there. it just a funny movie thing popped in my head. Oh, okay. Whenever you say cooking grease, I just all for and it wasn't even grease. I just all of a sudden remember that scene in My Cousin Vinny where they go to the diner I know and you, you know they got breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and the guy puts a big old thing of lard on it. Lard. He's like, uh, you guys aware of the dude growing cholesterol problem in America? <laughs> I don't know why that just popped in my yeah, head. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry, Sean. But that goes to your point about development, right? Right. The most important thing right. is the development yes. of the quarterbacks we have, along with recruiting. And right. like you said, the culture. Look, Malik laid it out. I had never heard anyone, like, plainly make it as succinct as he did the culture that was there and when we right. talked about it last week the importance of how tommy reese deals with tyler buckner and drew pond how that situation is dealt with is going to be an indicator of whether or not things have changed because the culture previously will will dictate that this is how things are going to go with this quarterback competition based upon how it's gone with every other quarterback competition in the past. Mm-hmm. So those are things just to look out for. Right. I'm excited because I, I want Tyler to really, really right. be that guy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. The name that was brought up, Sean, was Wimbush from James. And then I'm going to respond to another thing that James said. So, James, we should probably throw Brandon Wimbush into that conversation as well as a recruit. That would be fair. The reason I say, because, again, the point was development, right? Because my first response was, no, 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 because Wimbush wasn't the same guy by the time Chip got here. But that was part of the development problem in 15 and 16. Yeah. So I think James's point is good. You could throw Wimbush into that conversation, too. Yeah. Because had Brandon been developed properly, Brandon didn't have to be Bryce Young in 2017 for Notre Dame to win a title. No. He just needed to not be Tony Rice. That's the problem, right? He was Tony Rice, whereas they needed Jarius Jackson, right? I mean, is that a fair thing to say? I, Tony I, Rice I totally in 2017 would have been Brandon Wimbush. Jarius Jackson, Notre Dame wins a title if they had a Jarius Jackson quarterback in 2017. That's my yeah. opinion, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and Brandon could have been that and more, right? But he wasn't developed. So I think James is correct that Brandon Wimbush needs to be thrown in that conversation as well. And then he he made another comment. He was agreeing with your point about the glamour aspect of the position. He says, "But why does Notre Dame have a, a problem, hard time recruiting top quarterbacks?" And I think that's the faulty premise. I, again, even if you know James wants to talk about recruiting rankings, Brandon Wimbush was was almost identically ranked to Deshaun Watson. 
almost identically ranked. I think Deshaun was like 42. Brandon was like 43. Yeah. Uh, class apart. Yeah. A year apart. Yeah. Gunnar Keel is a five-star quarterback. Yeah. You know, Malik Zaire was a top 100 to 150 guy, which is a basically where Jane, where James, where Jalen Hurts was. Yeah. Phil Dracovic was a top hundred quarterback. And yeah. I would say criminally underrated. He just didn't get as much love because he didn't do the camps and, and he played basketball. And then that was a year with Justin Fields and, and Trevor Lawrence. And obviously if Tyler Buckner, when he, when he was committing Notre Dame was a top 50 player. Yeah. He fell out of the top 50 because he didn't play a senior year because of COVID. Right. If Tyler would have gone out and, and as a senior and, and thrown for 3,500 yards and rushed for 1,000 yards again, because I don't think he would have repeated yeah. the numbers the year before yeah. because he was playing against better competition. But he's still 3,500-plus, 1,000-plus, 60-plus touchdowns, even at Helix. You know, he's a top 50 player, if not a five-star. Mm-hmm. And, and Deshaun Kaiser was another guy that just – the ratings were stupid. I mean, Alabama wanted him. Notre Dame wanted him. Like, you can't tell me looking at Deshaun Kaiser's talent that he wasn't a top 100 quarterback. I don't yeah. care what the recruiting services said. So, And, and then Everett Golson was as good of a, as good of a quarterback as, as Notre Dame has signed. I mean, I, I don't care what anybody says. I don't know why he was ranked the, the way he was ranked. I think it was size. I think it was size. According to the quarterbacks that have played. Right. They looked up to Ed. Right. From a talent standpoint. They all, right. Ed was the best arm. Ed, like, that was the dude. Yeah. You know, and. Right. Jimmy Clausen's the only quarterback that Notre Dame was in the last 20 years that could, that, 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 could spin it. that you yeah. could say spun it better than Ev. That's yeah. it. Ev, but Ev brought so much more to the table than, than Jimmy. Absolutely. He's a runner and all those other types and of he was, his He had a stronger arm than Jimmy, too. 2012, he was just raw. Right. He was just raw. He literally just took over games without really knowing what he was doing. He would just take over right. games. You know, and of course, right. Tommy had to come in, games like Pitt, right. you know, to close things out. Right. He came into Stanford. Stanford was because Ev got hurt. Ev got hurt, yeah. Right. And then yeah. he had to start against BYU because Ev got right. hurt. Right. Right. But then you see the promise, even in the national championship game, like they were being nom- dominated in the trenches, but Ed was but running for his life, still I, I, making plays. I would argue the Michigan game is the only game they needed to bring in Tommy, in my opinion. Oh, yes. Even Purdue, I don't – but it was more of a you bring him in because you have him. Right. Because you have Tommy Reese, right. who started a bunch of games and can do certain things. You brought him in because you had him, not because right. you needed him other than the Michigan game. They needed him against Michigan. If Tommy doesn't come off the bench against Michigan, I don't know if Notre Dame wins that game. I mean, that was that was early, early on for Everett. So as as I think this was incredibly well said by Ed talking about Notre Dame, we don't develop QBs. We had no problem recruiting them, and and I think that's that's the key. That's why we said it's about development, not recruiting. And so um, I know Malik has told I think both of us that he played with himself. He played with four NFL quarterbacks. Talent-wise, yeah. Talent-wise, like no question. Ev, Deshaun, himself, himself and, and Brandon. And Brandon was the baby. Yeah. When when he left, when he decided yeah. to transfer, that was his. Right. That was his. Because Brandon baby. had a stronger arm than all of them. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe I still think Malik had the strongest arm. Okay. I personally thought Malik had just just pure distance and velocity. And. You know, and, and Ev had a much stronger arm than Jimmy, right? And yeah. and I mean, you could argue of the four quarters you talk about that Deshaun had the you know, weakest arm, 
you know, from a distance and a, I mean, think about that. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. And, and I only say weakest cause it's somebody's got to have the weakest of, I mean, you know, I mean, of, of the strengths and they were, you know, so, so point being, I don't think recruiting quarterbacks been the problem for coach Freeman. It's going to be about finding an offensive coordinator and or quarterbacks coach. Cause I'm okay. If it's the same person, yeah. depending on who it is that can develop quarterbacks. Yeah. Because if Notre Dame simply just recruits quarterback the next 10 years, like they had the last 10 years, we're going to be fine talent wise, but then find better developers than what they had pre Tom Reese. Tom Reese is still, he's showing progress. He's showing me potential. Now he's now that Kelly's gone. Now show me what you're made of. Yeah. He's a lot like Marcus Freeman. There's still some unknowns there that we don't really know about him. So there's a lot of prove it there. Show me there with this current staff. So whether it's Tommy Reese or someone else or someone else when Tommy Reese, let's say Tommy does a great job, he's going to leave for something. Yeah, that's just how it works. And and uh, then Coach Freeman's got to replace him with somebody that can do it as well, if not better. That that's the that's going to be the key because yeah. what Notre Dame's not going to have is they're not going to have what happened at Clemson. What happened at Clemson from a coaching standpoint was unique. And that is that Brent Venables turned down a lot of jobs to stay at Clemson. Yeah. And, then and if, and if and look, let's be honest. If Lin- yeah, and if Lincoln Riley doesn't leave for USC, Brent Venables is still the defensive coordinator at Clemson. Absolutely, in my opinion. I mean, he left his son. Yeah. Wow, that sounded really bad. He left conti- being able to continue to coach his son to go to Oklahoma. And it, that's only because Oklahoma was the job. I mean, because remember, he'd been there. He'd coached under Coach Stoops. Yeah. There was a connection with him, uh, with Brent Venables in Oklahoma. Yeah. And, you know, that, that was that was very deep. And, you know, so he's from Kansas. You know, he played at Kansas State. I mean, there was a there was a big 12-ish big connection yeah. for, for him there. Yep. And so – you know, so he's still there. Tony Elliott stayed way longer than anyone thought he was going to stay. Absolutely. Right. And so it's just one of those things where you just, you don't often see a guy keeping coordinators as long as Dabo was able to keep coordinators. And what's yeah. funny is, is for all the talk that people dislike Dabo, I think like six, he's, he's the guy that was able to keep his staff intact way longer. And I would argue too long. Cause I think there's a couple of moves he should have made honestly. Yeah. The online coach that needed to be changed before this year. Absolutely. But the other thing is like six or seven of his current assistants are either guys that played with him in college or mostly guys that he coached at Clemson. His almost his entire offensive staff now is former all Clemson players. So for a guy that that I keep hearing people say the players don't like and respect, mm-hmm. they got a weird way of showing it by coming back to coach with him. And that doesn't even include the fact that he had Chancey Stuckey on staff in a non on field role. Yeah, a former player. Former now, Chancey player. didn't play for Dabo when Dabo was head coach, but Dabo was his position coach in college. Right. So, but that's that's a bit of a unique situation. That that is again the anomaly from a coaching standpoint. Coach Freeman's most likely going to have to do more turnover because Notre Dame is such a unique place. Yeah. There's going to be more people if Notre Dame has the success that Clemson has. There's no way Marcus Freeman, no matter how much the players the coaches love him or whatever else that he's going to be able to keep this staff as intact as he is Dabo kept the Clemson staff. Yeah. Cause there's going to be too many big schools throwing too much money at those guys, NFL teams, all of it. So replace. Would, would you say the toughness 
from your program will come from your veterans, mm-hmm. the toughness and discipline. And like you said, the elevated skill more than likely will come from your young players that are coming in and your freshman or red shirt freshman classes. When you get that perfect mesh of a national championship team, you know, that's, that's what Wes Pritchett talked about. Mm-hmm. Like, this is an amazing story. He never saw Rocket until they played. So he never knew how fast Rocket was. Hmm. He said they would be, Barry Alvarez would have them on one side of the field and said they wouldn't see the offense, but they could hear Lou. And he said Barry would let them go and they would be done and Lou would still be coaching the offense. So he said it wasn't until he saw this kid run by him on a return in the first game that he was like, whoa, he's fast. <laughs> and that's just crazy, right? But it's, it's, it's that youthful exuberance and talent, and I think that's what that's, – that's why I'm so high on this team this year, and I right. think this team is being overlooked by a lot of people that are just – they don't want to be too optimistic, right? But this team is going to be tough. The veterans have been the two college football playoffs. They believe in themselves. And if they can find some difference makers and some of these young players to come in and make some big plays and Tyler Buckner can become the quarterback we believe he has the potential to become, this team can make it to the playoff. Right. I'm not predicting right now right. on this day that they will be in the playoffs. Right. This Notre Dame team. I'm saying I'm not going to predict it by the time we get to the, end of the summer. Absolutely. But this I'm Notre right Dame now. team can make it to the playoff. That's all I'm saying. They have the makings of a playoff team. They do. The final piece to this, Sean, is the institution. Finally. <laughs> there are some things the institution has to do differently. Now, one thing is Notre Dame needs to always value its independence. Mm -hmm. And I don't just mean that from a conference standpoint. Notre Dame has to always be the standard bearer for doing things the right way. Yes. Having said that, I kind of sometimes look at Notre Dame and their definition of the right way in a similar fashion in which I'm a big believer in amateurism, amateurism, Sean, so are you. Mm-hmm. The issue that we had is we just didn't think the NCA properly defined what amateurism was. Right. They set a standard of amateurism that was really not about true amateurism. It was more about we want to make sure they're not getting their piece of the pie and that all stuff. Right. We can right. all we should all be able to agree on that. But I don't think amateurism is the way the NCA did it or nothing. I think that's that's a very narrow mind, not narrow minded, narrow focus and like just. That's not the standard. I believe in amateurism. NIL does not make them not amateurs. Right. Because they're not being paid. They're not employees. They're not workers, not getting paid by the institution for their football ability. Their football ability is allowing them to do some things to help them earn some money. And I'm fine with that. As long as it's not the schools or the NCA paying them. Yeah. Okay. That's my, that's my stance. Other than like the school paying them, there's some things I think the school should do. I've talked about this. I think every institution, if you're going to be an NCA institution, every single sale that you make that has any type of player's jersey number or face on it should always be put aside into a, a slush fund, so to speak, that when players graduate, if they don't make an NFL roster and stay in the NFL for X number of years, 
they would then get that. And so if you don't make the NFL and you graduate, you get X amount of dollars that are part of this fund. Right. Yeah. Because to me, that's more of that's the way that the institutions can say, hey, we're going to make sure that we're taking care of you mm-hmm. to a help you get on your feet as you get jobs to help pay for some medical costs that would be incurred from your time playing for us. Right. Since we can't, so, you know, you're not under our umbrella anymore. Right. I think those things should have happened. That's the only paying players that I support. But that's only once you graduate. Like you got to graduate to get that. That's yeah. something that's a different conversation for a different day. But they have to be willing to say going with certain things that are happening in, in college and, athletics yeah, yeah. doesn't mean you're not still setting the standard. Right. Being more open to this NIL reality doesn't mean you're losing sight of what makes your institution unique. Right. And as long as the school, and I expect Father Jenkins to be gone soon, I think that's going to be a good thing for Notre Dame. I think Jack Swarbrick's going to be gone soon. I'm not as excited about that because I'm a little bit more nervous. I think Jack Swarbrick has done a great job at Notre Dame. I agree. I think Father Jenkins is – I'm so past ready for him to leave. Uh, You know, but the new president, the new father, whatever, the new president and the new AD, because that's going to happen sooner rather than later just age and different things. And I, I've been told father Jenkins is, is probably, you know, nearing the end of his career. Same with Jack. They have to be willing to say, we're going to hold firm very, very tightly to the belief that as a, as a Catholic institution, as an institution that, that thrives on being a place of academic excellence and cultural excellence and excellence of faith and all these other things, there are certain things we're never going to allow but that doesn't mean you can't embrace some of the changes from an NIL standpoint, from, you know, having great facilities, having the best facilities in the nation does not mean you are sacrificing academic excellence. That's an absurd quality, absurd sort of parallel to draw that I don't think they should be drawing that I think that Notre Dame has held on to that for too long. There is nothing wrong with having the best facilities, the best yeah. this. Now, does that mean that your facility has to have a slide in it? No, that's stupid, right? But, and I'm not talking about having an arcade. I'm talking about like your locker rooms are the best. I wouldn't mind those things best. when we go watch but, practice. But Brian, that I to me, <laughs> I like, Sean, dude, where were you during practice? I'm out here trying to, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, dog. I was, like, I was, I was watching, I was watching the I was in. The I was in there in the arcade. Um, that would so be us. Um. My point is, however, that's how I'm talking about great facilities. There's yeah. no reason that you can't take more pride in, you know, ha- silly like having air conditioning in your dorms, whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like having the best facilities, having the best locker room, having the best field, having scoreboards, having this. Ha- None of those things mean you don't care about academic excellence. Here's what here's what means you've sacrificed academic excellence and cultural excellence. You make an athlete dorm. No, I don't want Notre Dame to ever do that. I don't want Notre Dame to ever separate the athletes from the rest of the student body. That's a sacrifice you don't make. They don't want that either. No, right. From a recruiting standpoint, that's a selling point for other places. Mm -hmm. That is sacrificing what makes you unique. But having the best locker room, having the best weight room, having the best indoor facility, having the press field, being in the arms race, there's nothing wrong with that. No. Being, paying your coaches as much as the Alabama coaches are being paid doesn't mean you no longer believe in excellence from an academic and cultural standpoint. 
Absolutely. That's something that the Notre Dame leadership needs to understand is there's this silly notion that, well, we're not going, we, we are an institution of academic and cultural excellence. So we are not going to do this. Those two things have nothing to do with each other. Yeah. If you're a place of academic excellence and you have the best law professor in the country, or the best history dean or the best whatever, aren't you going to make sure that that person is paid in a, such a manner that's going to keep them here to continue your academic excellence? Yeah. Of course. I don't see, you know, I, I highly doubt Father Jenkins is out there taking pay cuts. I doubt Jack Swarbrick's only making 20 grand a year, right? There's there's nothing wrong with saying in order to maintain excellence in every aspect of it, we have to spend a little bit more over here than maybe some people are comfortable with. That's right. But just because our coach makes $12 million a year, just because we have one of the five highest paid coaching staffs in the country, doesn't mean that we're still not demanding that our players go to class every day and get legitimate educations and partake in what makes and, and building them up as young student athletes. And the fact that Notre Dame has kind of made that qualifier or, mm-hmm. or has always seemed kind of stupid and petty and, and behind the times and just arbitrary. Those are some of the changes that the institution needs to make. And if anything, you could say, Hey, we're going to demand even more from you in those areas because we're not paying you as much as everybody else. We're not even going to hold you even to a higher standard of you better darn sure make sure that your team GPA is here right. and that your graduation rate is here and that players aren't getting in trouble over here because you're paying, being paid quite handsomely to do so. Yeah. Right. And Look, so to me, that's going to be an important piece of, of this. And that's thing. something that, you know, people focus on Bob Davey, a lot of other issues, but what really started Notre Dame in the fall at the end of the Lou Holtz era was the constant back and forth he had to go through with the right. administration. Right. Not having his bag, not being supportive of the program, trying to hold on to these traditions and thinking right. that the traditions were constantly under constantly under attack, you know, due to the success of the football team and worrying about the football team becoming more famous than the school. It's like, are you the football team has been more famous than the school for a long time, mm-hmm. for a long time. Like that ship has sailed. Like it's no reason to even worry about that. Right. A lot of folks use the term the right way. Right. I think the staff has been open and honest about not only to recruits, but to alumni and the fans. Like we have to open our minds to change right. our perspective on the right. Correct. Fit. Stop Correct. that. Correct. The right fit is not what we've known traditionally. It doesn't when have it to be a private school from Connecticut. It no. could be a public school from South Florida. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that that kid couldn't thrive at a place like Tony Rice in under the Brian Kelly administration would not have been considered. He would not have been a guy they found shopping down a different aisle. No, Jerome Bettis either, who just got his degree. Right. No, and two of the best ambassadors of Notre Dame football right. and the university that you can find. To me, doing it the right way is doing it in a way that strives on excellence, strives on having some sort of moral fiber of who mm-hmm. you are. Yeah. Has an idea of your job is to not only develop great football players, but to develop outstanding young men. We're yeah. talking about the football program here. Part part of excellence means, you know, making sure that that we are a, a first class academic institution and that football players are not 
excluded from that aspect yeah. of it, like they are at other institutions that are also very good football institution or yeah. academic institutions. You know, University of Miami, for example, uh, they're going to be brought into that culture. They have to adapt to that academic culture of excellence. But it doesn't mean that th- th- this whole doing it the right way thing, there's things that Notre Dame has done that make them sort of NCAA-ish. Yeah. In that, is that really the reason that you're not willing to pay your coach the most? You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's 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 some, are you know, no. If if Marcus Freeman proves to be someone that can win championships, develop outstanding young men, hold Notre hold the Notre Dame standard true, then he should absolutely be among the highest paid in his profession. Absolutely, just like you would do for any dean or professor or whatever the case may be. If you don't think spending money to to keep and maintain people that have proven success, then you don't truly believe in excellence. Yes. Because excellence is something that you just do some of the time. Why does Notre Dame spend so much money on first-class buildings? Because they view that as something that, you know, the, the, pers- the, the visual perception, the aesthetic perception of excellence. We want people to walk on this campus and be awed. Awed. Well, how's that any different than saying we're going to make sure that our football coaching staff who's done this, this, and this, and, and this is something that I, it, it, this is something I think, you know, in fairness to Brian Kelly, but yeah. the, the reason I think part of the, the holdup for, for Brian Kelly is Brian Kelly didn't always do it the right way and, and how he developed his program and how he interacted with his program. So I'm not saying he necessarily should have gotten that, but if Marcus Freeman is who we think he is mm-hmm. and the kind of coaches he's hired, then the Notre Dame as an institution needs to be willing to step up and say, we're going to make sure that you have everything you need as long as you understand that you're bringing in men that are like Chancey Stuckey, that are like Al Washington, yeah. that are like Mike Mickens, that are like you know these type of people where we're going to demand that every, if you're going to be an assistant coach here, you're going to be one of the five highest paid people at your position. But you know what that also means? You have a much higher burden for what we're going to demand of you. There's a level of expectation for what you're going to be doing on the day-to-day lives. And if you don't want to be here, it's like, look, you come to Notre Dame, you're going to get paid as an assistant coach. Right. Here's the thing. You're an assistant coach of football, man. No. I'm sorry. You can't. So right, you can you can have both of those things be true. Yes. But you can't say we're going to hold you this high standard and then not pay you like that. And until the institution understands that, that paying people top dollar does not equal – a sacrificing what you believe in as long as the people you're paying the right way understand and adapt and, and believe in doing it the right way, then you're going to, you're, you know, you're, and, you're, and you're this is not, you cannot fool the fan base. This no. is not the Chicago white Sox where people don't come unless right. there's a winning team and the ownership can say, well, we don't have right. the money. The fans right. aren't coming. No, this is Notre Dame. You can't fool right. There's no fool in the fan base. We know there's there is money to play. Sean, if Notre Dame decided we are going to have the highest paid coaches in the country, yes, they would have no problem raising the money to make sure that that was true. No, theoretically, I do think there was a time recently where there were a lot of alums and big money people who would have been less willing to give that money. Because mm-hmm. they didn't believe in the specific coach. Oh, yes, yes. I'm talking more big picture. Uh huh. If a Lou Holtz, a Marcus Freeman, a, you know somebody like that, 
was there, then I think there'd be there'd be no problem doing that. Yeah. Hey, uh, guys, look, my offensive coordinator just got offered two two and a half million dollars to go to the NFL team. I, I need a million dollars. Done because yeah. you just won a championship. Yeah. Because you just made sure that you you know had your your players are graduating, your kids are out in the community every flipping week doing this, 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 and this, you've represented our institution at a high level. Mm-hmm. I think that's an issue that a lot of people about Brian Kelly. He made it very known that he didn't necessarily – like Notre Dame was always an impediment to him. He didn't – it was very clear to a lot of alums, and I've learned this even more so the last three or four years. A lot of alums did not view him as someone who had the same respect for the institution as other coaches. And other coaches. Charlie, yeah. you know, Lou, people like that. Era. Yeah. And so they they would have been less willing to support him, but it wasn't a lack of funds. It was a lack of yeah. But I'm not giving it to you. Yeah, that's not going to be the case with Marcus Freeman. No, and so it wouldn't be an issue there. So the money's there, in my opinion. It's just does the school is the school willing to do it? And you know, is are are the people with the money going to be willing to do it for him? Yeah, that specific guy. I don't think that's an issue anymore. Yeah, I mean, for me. When it comes to college football, Notre Dame is synonymous with the Yankees. Notre Dame is synonymous with the Lakers in the NBA. Notre Dame is synonymous with Man, you know, Man U, you know, Manchester United uh, over overseas. Like it is the brand. It mm-hmm. it is like if you're the quarterback, if you're the center for the Lakers, you're a Hall of Famer. If you're the quarterback right. at Notre Dame, you should be right. the highest NIL earning championship garnering athlete in college football right. it's like it's synonymous with that and that we believe right that's what can be delivered over the next five years right we believe that that's the final piece to a dynasty that's the only way you can sustain it in today's era is you've got to get over some of these arbitrary things that you don't think are about excellence yep and and when the institution r- realizes that those two things aren't aren't at odds with each other. Yeah. Pouring a lot of money into your coaches and your program doesn't mean you don't care about academics and cultural excellence and all those other kind of things. They yeah. do not have anything to do with each other. Yeah. It only matters if you're pouring that money into someone who doesn't represent your institution. Absolutely. And I don't think that's going to be an issue with the current head coach no. or his staff. No.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.